Over 15% of abusers have a history of mental illness, but does this excuse their abusive behavior? Absolutely not. On today's episode of the Unspoken Cycle podcast, I bring to you part two of my unspoken story, Paranoia Made Him Do It, a personal recollection of abuse at the hands of a diagnosed schizophrenic. I must warn you that what I share may be intense and graphic at times, so please listen with caution. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining me today and bringing awareness and fighting the demon of domestic violence. Join me as I talk about the prevalence of mental illness among abusers, how to spot the red flags, and share my testimony of survival from a very horrifying relationship. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Unspoken Cycle Podcast, where women of all ages and stages in life can find guidance and solace from life's everyday stresses. In each episode, we'll tackle a range of topics, including relationships, health, fertility, self-love, careers, mental illness, and more. Stay Stay tuned tuned. for valuable insights, personal anecdotes, and the comfort of knowing you're not not alone. alone. Here's your host, Leah Vaughn. Hello, hello. Welcome, everybody, to the Unspoken Cycle podcast. I am your host, Leah Vaughn, and thank you so much for joining me today. How are y'all doing? Are you guys ready for the change in weather? I know I am. I am sipping on a nice hot cup of coffee this morning, and that is how I know that the weather is changing because usually I'm an iced coffee person. I typically get up in the mornings and make myself an iced shaken brown sugar espresso. And when the weather gets cold in the mornings, I definitely need something hot pumping through my veins. So I've got my hot cup of coffee. I'm ready to go. I let the dogs out this morning to go outside and do their thing. And when I opened the door, I just had this rush of fresh, cool air and y'all have no idea how it just, it made me feel so full of bliss. And I mean, it was cool air, but I felt warm and cozy and my sweatshirt and my socks and my fluffy slippers. And yeah, I'm definitely um, so excited for this season change. Fall is by far my favorite season of the year. I like winter because I love to be cold and bundle up. When we lived up north, I loved the snow. I am someone who does love the snow. Um, I don't know if I could live in like feet of snow all the time, but we trooped through New York City for several winter seasons through the snow and the ice and the sleet to the subway and everything else. And I guess I don't like that part of the snow, but if you have some solid winter boots and thick socks and, you know, the whole get up, the, the coat, the beanie, the gloves, the scarf, then you're good. As long as you're warm, it's good. So I was warm in those moments and was totally fine with it. 
but I definitely do like that part of winter. And of course the holidays, Christmas is my favorite holiday. So as soon as it starts to transition into wintertime, I'm excited because I know Christmas is coming, but, um, spring is cool with me. I like the flowers. I don't like all the insects and bugs and, and creatures that start to emerge with springtime. So not such a fan of that part. Um, but I do love all the pretty flowers that start to bloom and my plants come back to life after being dormant during the colder months. So I like that part. However, not my fave, definitely not a, um, a fan of summertime, even though I grew up in California where it was scorching hot every summer and really dry and gross. I am certainly not a fan of that. I don't like being hot to me. It's just really uncomfortable. You can only strip off so many layers of clothing to get comfy when it's hot, hot, hot outside. And I don't like just going from my front door to my car or through my garage to get to my car and breaking out in a sweat because it's like 110 or the humidity index is like 90%. It's bizarre that people to me like that climate. I am not one of those. So for me, fall is where it's at. The leaves are changing. It's aesthetically pleasing. It's beautiful outside. I don't even mind raking the leaves as they fall. So yeah, I'm all for it. And speaking of that, we have a neighbor who has a ginormous tree. I don't know what kind of tree it is, but it's a huge tree and it literally sits right next to the fence line. So it's right up above their their side of the fence, but it leans over into our yard. And yeah, it's really annoying because the majority of the leaves, I'm sure they get a lot of leaves in their backyard too, whatever, but the leaves mostly fall in our yard. So for the next few weeks, we'll be raking incessantly <laughs> to get all these leaves up off the ground. So, but it's fine. It's whatever. I'll take it for the season. But anyways, I'm rambling on. How are y'all doing? I hope you're doing well. Um, for those of you who are tuning in, you know this is part two of my unspoken story in honor of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is October. If you're not familiar, I am doing a four-part series on domestic violence. I have been in several uh, relationships that involved domestic abuse, domestic violence, and each one was very different. They all looked different. They all had different characteristics of abuse. And I just feel like it's important to educate uh, the public and women and people everywhere on what abuse looks like and that it is possible to survive abuse and to come out on the other side, heal yourself, move forward and thrive. So that is my intention with this series. Thank you for those who listened to part one. That episode was really tough to record. That particular relationship has not uh, been a part of my life for decades. And I think some of the things that came up as I was talking, I had almost forgotten about or maybe forgotten, so to speak, the severity of the situation that I was in in that relationship. And I was in that relationship for several years at a really young age. So a lot of things came kind of rushing back to me. It was very emotional, very triggering experience to talk about. However, um, it's an example of how sometimes we can talk about things that are hard and memories um, trigger us into places that feel dark, but it's okay to process them in the moment however we need to. And 
just keep working on our healing. So obviously that's a relationship that will probably take many more decades of my life to truly heal deeply from. I believe for the most part, I've tackled a lot of the uh, dysfunction and trauma that it left me with. But yeah, abuse is, is real and it's really devastating on our lives. So ladies, if you've been in a situation where you were abused uh, recently or a long time ago and you just find that no matter how hard you try to heal from it, it continues to creep up and affect you, you're not alone. It's completely normal. And that is the effect and after effect of abuse. So again, thank you for those who listened. Thank you for those of you who reached out to me and provided encouraging words and words of support. It means the world to me to know that my testimony is being heard because that means that I am impacting people's lives in the way that I'm intended to. And that is my purpose. Here I am with part two. Part two is very... Uh, a very different story. There are some similarities, but I do want to give you a trigger warning regardless. This relationship did indeed involve abuse and can be triggering um, in the way that I will talk about some of my experiences with this individual. So if you are not ready to hear that today, please click on out of this and uh, feel free to not listen. I don't expect you to. That is purely a choice that you need uh, to make to take care of yourself today. So if you're not in a good place to hear information or real life testimony on the effects of abuse, I certainly encourage you to do what's best for you. For those of you who are going to continue to listen to my story today, again, it can be triggering, it can be unexpectedly triggering, and I just encourage you to make sure you indulge in some self-care and take care of yourself today. So if you find that you're listening and it gets harder and harder, or maybe it's bringing up things that are not easy for you to process today, certainly click out and maybe listen another time when you feel you may be ready. So here we go. Let's get started, ladies. I wanted to talk about mental illness today and abuse. My title for today's episode is My Unspoken Story, Paranoia Made Him Do It. And the reason why is because I dated an individual. Again, these relationships are not current in my life, nor have they happened recently. So for any of the things I talk about, it's been at least a decade, decade and a half or much longer. So this was a relationship I was in over 14 years ago. Uh, to me, that feels like ages ago. But of course, when I talk about these things, it can feel like it was just yesterday. But yes, this was an old relationship, happened a long time ago. And the individual that I was dating um was somebody who was diagnosed with severe mental illness in the middle of our relationship. There were several red flags in this relationship that were pretty obvious to me that something was not right with this individual. And before I get started with the things that I experienced in that relationship, I want to give you a little bit of information on mental illness and abuse. I was looking for resources online and came across an article written by Dr. Pytel. It's P-E-I-T-L. I probably butchered that name. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it was called Personality Disorders and Propensity to Violence. And he said, antisocial or borderline personality disorders are commonly associated with the risk of violent behavior, especially when comorbid with substance abuse. 
Several other severe mental disorders are also linked to increased risk of violent behavior, particularly schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So this particular individual was diagnosed schizophrenic, again, in the middle of our relationship, probably about nine months in, I would say. The length of our relationship overall was not that long. We were together maybe two, two and a half years, probably closer to two and a half years. And um, and it wasn't consistent. We did end up breaking up because of his behavior. He sought treatment, saw a psychiatrist, and we gave it one more try uh, just for it to horrifically crash and burn. Um, so anyways, I'll get to that part. But I do want you to know that there are some statistics regarding uh, domestic violence and the association with mental illness being prevalent in the abuser. According to the National Institute for Health at NIH.gov, there is a peer-reviewed article that states that overall 15.51% of police-recorded domestic violence events had at least one mention of mental illness for either the person of interest, meaning the abuser, the victim, or both. So domestic violence is greatly associated with mental illness. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of abusers who don't seek help and treatment for mental illness because it's a stigma, right? They're, number one, very rarely going to admit that they have an, a, a problem uh, with abuse and with the way that they cope and, and manage um, their feelings and anger and everything else. And number two, I mean, let's be real. What percentage of men really say, I think I have a mental illness. Let me go get this checked out, especially younger men. It's not often going to be something that we hear. And I definitely think that it is something that needs to be talked about more often. Many years ago, um, and again, I'll, I'll get into this part, but this individual inspired me to get my life coaching degree, to specialize in trauma healing, as well as go to school for psychology, because I was fascinated with how his brain was kind of malfunctioning, I guess, for lack of better term. That's what I felt like was happening. And I wanted to know more. I wanted to research it. Um, I was really interested in why things were happening to him the way they were happening to him. Um, and so that was an inspiration for me to go to school. But uh, while I was going to school and after I obtained uh, my life coaching certifications, I was asked by a local domestic violence shelter in Central Valley, California, to create a program to rehabilitate um, abusers. I was young and ambitious and I thought, yeah, this is great. You know, abusers come from somewhere too. They're humans. There's reasons why they have the behavior that they have. A lot of the time it starts at home. Um, obviously, I already knew mental illness could contribute to abuse and their behaviors and inability to regulate their behavior. And then I also um, just wanted to be that person that was like, hey, I'm a survivor. I've been in the shoes of victims and survivors. I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of abuse, but is anyone ever really advocating for the abusers to heal themselves and get well? Unfortunately, the more I dug into writing the program, the less interest I realized abusers would have in it. 
just because statistically abusers don't seek help. Most of the time they don't want to change. Um, if you did listen to my previous episode of part one, that individual was someone who would always cry about wanting to change. He didn't mean to be this way. He didn't want to act this way. He didn't want to do it. However, he continued the behavior. He never actively did anything to better himself. So this is somebody, an example of how abusers don't change. They don't want to change. They may say it. It may be charming to hear. It may get their victims to where they need to be emotionally to give them another chance and to be able to continue to rein in that control over them. But abusers just aren't interested. So needless to say, I didn't go forward with implementing that program because I felt like, well, realistically, I would rather invest my time, resources, and passion into helping victims uh, overcome their circumstances and helping survivors heal. So that's where I, that's where I was. That's where I am today all these years later. All right. So my story of mental illness and abuse, I began dating many years ago. I began dating an individual a few years younger than me. Uh, we met at a mutual event for work and um, just kind of hit it off, started dating each other. I was young single mom and um, I was somebody who was in a very good place in my life. I had a great career. Um, I was, in my opinion, at that time in my life, kind of living it up, you know, um, had a, a, a beautiful home that I lived in, bought myself a brand new car, um, had my kids in a great daycare preschool, and just was doing really well. And so I met this individual. Again, he was somebody who was charismatic, charming, fun you know, came off in the beginning as having a great personality. A lot of the typical characteristics of narcissists and abusers, you know, they really know how to reel you in. They really know how to make themselves so appealing. And it's almost like they're chameleons. They just kind of conform to whoever they meet that they want to make their prey. And so I was quickly smitten with this individual and we began dating. We dated for about eight or nine months um, and things were okay until they started to kind of take a turn. I'm going to jump immediately into the red flags because the red flags were ob completely obvious and I overlooked them or I think I made excuses for them is probably the better words to use. But there were definitely red flags from the beginning. What made it hard was that we knew a lot of mutual people, like mutual friends, and everybody loved this guy. They thought he was great. They thought he was like the life of the party, so to speak. And, you know, there's no way this guy is going to act this way. So, you know, and then for me, after having already been in such a devastating domestic violence relationship that was really violent, I was looking for those kind of characteristics, I guess you could say. I'm not even sure I was looking for anything, but if it was going to be labeled as domestic violence or as abusive, I was expecting it to be physical or just really aggressive from the beginning, like my previous relationship was. And it this wasn't. So I really began at one point to question my own sanity with this individual. So here are some of the red flags that started to come up. We would do things like drive somewhere. 
Okay. I would drive, he would be sitting in the passenger seat and I would look in my side view mirror and my rear view mirror to make a lane change or to turn somewhere. And he would say, what are you looking at? And that's kind of an odd question to ask someone who's driving. You know, what do you mean? What am I, what am I looking at? I'm looking in my mirrors. I'm driving. And he, and he would say, who are you looking for? What do you mean? Who am I looking for? Nobody. I'm driving. So little, that, that was probably the biggest thing that started to become a regular part of his behavior. He would question me while I was driving or when we were out in public places. And he would tell me that my eyes would shift to somebody in particular in a crowd, or if we walked by somebody on the sidewalk, he would tell me that, you know, I remember there was this one time that we were driving down the road and I made a lane change. I went from the middle lane to the right lane and there was a motorcycle. And so I, I changed over into the lane and then the motorcyclist was behind me and he said, how do you know him? And I was like, what? You know, it was so, it was such a bizarre question. I was just kind of, huh? You know, like deer in headlights. What are you even talking about? And he said, well, you looked at him for a really long time. So in the mirror, so obviously, you know, this guy. And I'm thinking, what the fuck are you talking about? That behavior became a red flag to me of jealousy and insecurity. I thought, oh my God, this guy is jealous or he's like the most insecure guy on the face of this earth. What the fuck is intimidating about me looking in a mirror to literally change a lane? Of course, if I'm looking in my mirrors, it's because there's someone beside me or behind me or whatever. And I'm just being cautious. That's literally how we're taught to drive in driving school, buddy. Like these are the things that would go through my head and we would argue about it. And every time I would tell him, you're tripping, stop acting this way. It's so stupid. It makes no sense. You know, what the fuck are you talking about? Just how in the hell is that an indication that I know somebody personally? It's just stupidest thing I ever just processed in a relationship before. But I liked this guy. So I thought, you know... Maybe he's just had, and this is me being that person who had been traumatized and also being somebody who was overly empathetic and having quote unquote forgiven somebody for so many years before that and allowing them to, I guess, redeem themselves, so to speak. I didn't want to give up on this guy. You know, and then I also I I do think now that I look back that there was a big piece of me that didn't want to be a failure, you know, and I grew up in a home where my parents were married my entire life until my mom passed away. I was very educated on the importance of family, the importance of commitment and those types of things. And I think I also wanted to hang on to this person because I did not want to fail again in a toxic relationship. So some part of me was refusing to believe that that was a red flag that was going to lead me down a really rough road with this guy. You're listening, You're listening to The Unspoken Cycle with Leah Vaughn. Embrace your female within. 
that's kind of how his behavior began. And it slowly began to escalate from being out and him thinking that I was looking at people and it was always men looking at other men or, you know, I remember one time he even accused me of winking at somebody and I was like, are you, are you serious? Do you really think I just winked at somebody? My philosophy is if I'm going to be stupid enough to cheat on you, I for damn sure I'm not going to do anything obvious in front of your face. Like, And ladies, I am not a cheater. But if I were, I would like to think I would be smart enough to keep that shit hidden. Okay, so this guy is sitting here thinking I'm out, out in public just doing all sorts of crazy shit right in front of his face. It's like, are you, fucking, are you fucking serious? And it was actually really hurtful, though, because I wasn't doing anything wrong. And I wasn't making googly eyes at random guys I knew in, in the crowd that, you know, I was doing something behind his back with or had known or, so, you know, just weird shit like that. And so it became really frustrating to me. And the more he accused me of it, I was almost becoming rebellious to his accusations. And the more I wanted to prove to him that he was not right, that he was so far off. So again, it began to escalate and it came, it, it started to trickle into the home. So I would do things like, um, you know, get out of the shower and wrap myself in a towel. And if the blinds weren't closed all the way. And I'm not talking wide open, blinds open, I'm naked in front of the window. But I mean, if there were open maybe a centimeter because I didn't twist the little handle thingy all the way, or I went to look out the window for something because I lived at that time in a really nice, big loft apartment that had giant floor to ceiling windows. And I am somebody who loves sunlight. I love fresh air. I'm going to open the windows. Okay. It's just who I am. I appreciate nature and allowing the outdoors to come in and vice versa. So I would leave my blinds open during the daytime. I would, you know, open my windows. And if I went to look outside the window, it's who, who are you looking for? Who's outside? you know, things like that. And I would just be like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? This guy is definitely bizarre. And that's pretty much how I would describe it. And again, it would always cause an argument because I was very defensive of myself. I knew I wasn't doing anything wrong. And the behavior of accusing me that I was constantly looking for somebody was just really fucking weird to me. But again, I stuck it out Every time we would talk it out and I would reassure him, I don't know why you're thinking these things, but, you know, something's not right. And it even got to a point where I would tell him, you know, stop drinking. He wasn't an alcoholic. He didn't abuse alcohol. But I was just like, anything that could possibly be influencing you right now, don't do it. You know, like something ain't right. But I wasn't really well versed at that time on mental health and mental illness. And I certainly didn't think that anything was wrong with him in that regard. So fast forward another maybe six months or so into our relationship, things got really intense. Um, he began to, I mean, he continued the delusional uh behavior 
And then he began to like call me names behind it, tell me I was a lying piece of shit. He would send me text messages and tell me I was a slut and a whore and all of these things. And I look back now and I'm like, why the fuck did I stay with this guy? Like what the hell was, about? there was nothing about him that was that special, you know, but I think back and think that was a sad cycle that I got myself into because there were a lot of honeymoon phases with this guy. And then there was a lot of leading up to the explosions and the leading up to the explosions was always the questions, the second guessing, the doubting me, the where are you at? What are you doing? Who are you with? What are you looking at? Who are you looking at? What are you looking for? It's got to be someone. It's got to be something, you know, and that just became really exhausting. So it got to a point where uh, we lived closer to my family and we're spending a lot of time with my parents this guy met a couple of my friends and I just remember there was one night he had gone to a basketball game with my dad and came home and he was in such a good mood before they left. Really excited. He was someone who loved basketball. So that was something exciting for him. And my dad wanted him to feel included and, you know, try to, I guess, build a relationship and get to know him a little bit better. So, he went to a basketball game with my dad, came home, and my dad and I were talking in the kitchen. And my dad was telling me about the game, and you know, we were just making small talk or whatever. And then uh, and then I went, you know, um, was talking to my boyfriend afterwards, just kind of one-on-one. And he literally said to me, and I kid you not, what I'm about to tell you is real. There were a lot of times that I have replayed the situation or shared it in sharing my testimony with other people. And it just feels so bizarre that I'm like, there's no way this is real. But this is this was my life. This really happened. He said to me, do you guys think I'm fucking stupid? And I was like, what do you mean? Do we think you're stupid? I have no idea what you're talking about. And as a side note, I feel like I said that said that like consistently, probably several times a day to this guy. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, do you really think I'm fucking stupid? I'm like, what do you mean? He grabbed me by the throat, hemmed me up against the wall, and literally said to my face, I know you're fucking your dad. As in sleeping with my father. My jaw dropped. I think I wanted to believe he was joking in some weird, like sadistic, haha way. But this guy was serious. He seriously thought that I was sleeping with my dad. And I was like, what is wrong with your brain? And I literally said that to him. I remember yelling that to him. What is wrong with your brain? Who the fuck thinks that someone else is sleeping with their father, like who accuses their partner of fucking their family members is I just, I had a really hard time wrapping my head around it. And then that was the very first time he became physical with me. And I was like, okay, something is wrong with this guy. 
Now I'm in a whole different level of discomfort in this relationship. No more of this wanting to like figure out a way to keep him in my life. I don't know. I, I, I obviously had a lot of healing to do within myself because I was so much better than the bullshit I dealt with. And I just remember thinking something's really wrong. I don't know what's wrong with him, but it's scary. This guy really thinks that I am all about every other man on this earth, including my own father. Like, how do I figure this one out? That began to escalate that behavior. After that particular incident, I remember we were hanging out with a friend of mine and her husband at their house. And he was having a beer with her husband and me and her were sitting there talking and we were talking about like President Obama or something like that and um, just casual conversation. And we went home afterwards and this guy was like, why were you guys talking about me behind my back? And I was like, what are you talking about? We weren't even talking about you. We were literally, literally talking about the presidency and everything else. And he was like, no, you guys were talking about uh, a man and you wanted to keep it secretive. And I know it was me. I know you were talking about me. I was like, what are you taught? We literally weren't talking about you. I literally sat there and told him exactly what the conversation was about. And he did not believe me. He thought we were sitting there just talking shit, having a heyday, talking all sorts of shit about him behind his back. And I thought, okay, you think everything's about you. That's when that kind of light bulb started to click in my head that everything that he accused me of revolved around him. If it wasn't like sleeping with somebody or hooking up for, with somebody or trying to behind his back or whatever, it was talking about him, making fun of him, like plotting against him. He literally told me that my friend and I were plotting to do something to him. And I was like, do something like what? What are you even fucking talking about? He really couldn't even explain what he felt like we were doing, but he said it was a plot. And I thought, what is wrong with this guy? Like something's really wrong with this person. He's not normal. And our fights began to escalate because I was becoming increasingly frustrated with his behavior and also started to feel like maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm doing something that's triggering him to feel so insecure in our relationship. I, I Maybe I need help. Like I started to take the blame for the behavior that he was portraying, thinking I was really causing it. And then that was a whole mind fuck that I was doing on myself. Because I wanted to come up with a reasonable excuse of why he was like tripping the fuck out. Eventually, there was a situation where I was at work and he called me at work. And this is what led to me pushing for him to get help. It was a really disturbing situation. So he called me at work. And he was crying hysterically. I mean, boo-hoo, like big, big, big tears crying on the other uh, end of the phone. And I was like, what is going on? What's wrong? And he said, I'm scared. And I said, what are you scared of? And he said, there's something in the house. 
And I was like, what do you mean there's something in the house? I thought he meant someone had broken into the house. So my thing is get out of the house, call 911. If something, someone's in the house, like breaking in or robbing us, like get out. He said, no, it's not a human. And I was like, what do you mean it's not a human? And he said, there's a goblin running around the room and it keeps pulling at my feet and arms and trying to pull me off the bed. And when I tell you, as he described this situation to me, he cried harder and harder. He was so terrified. I could hear it in his voice, just terrified. And I was like, what are you talking about? Did you do any drugs today? I I started questioning, did you do any drugs? Are you drunk? Like, what in the world are you even talking about? There's a goblin in the room running around. He swore up and down that something woke him up out of his sleep. And it looked like a goblin or a little demon or something. And it was running around the room, pulling at his arms and legs, trying to pull him off the bed. And in that moment, I think my, my desire to try to be compassionate or understanding to him or just, I don't even know what, just went, went out the door. That was the most bizarre thing I had ever heard in my entire life. And I thought to myself, I hung up the phone. I was like, you're fine. Goblins don't exist. I literally didn't take him seriously. He he was hysterical on the other end of the line. And I was like, you're fucking crazy. You're fine. And I literally hung up on him. In that moment, I became really angry and realized that his problem and the reason for his behavior over the last year and a half or however long it had been at that point was because he was not normal. He was not mentally healthy. That was, I guess, what I needed. I don't know to open my eyes. And I went home and I didn't know how to address it. We got into an argument. I told him that he was crazy. And I said, you need to figure this shit out because something's wrong with you. The way that you think and process things is insane, literally. And I told him he was batshit crazy. I told him he needed help. I told him something was wrong with him and I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So all of his family lived on the East Coast and we were on the West Coast. And I just remember saying, you've got to figure it out. You need to go home or something, but this isn't right. So we went to sleep that night. He got up and went to use the bathroom. And I remember just kind of turning over. You know how when you're you're not really woken up out of your sleep, but you just kind of readjust yourself, something kind of uh, wakes you up from that deep REM sleep and you just readjust yourself and get comfortable again. So as he was in the bathroom, I just kind of turned over and got comfy again. He walked out and said, what are you doing? Well, he didn't say it. He yelled it. Of course, I'm like, what are you talking about? Here we go again. What What do you mean? What am I doing? I'm fucking sleeping is what I'm doing. And he said, I saw you looking out the window. Who are you looking for? Who's in the backyard? 
what do you mean who's in the backyard? No one's, I don't know. You go, go outside and look then. If you think someone's hiding in the bushes in the backyard, here's a fucking flashlight. Go outside, go find them by all means. Spend the rest of the night outside. I don't give a shit, but you're fucking crazy and I'm tired of this shit. So we got into an argument and that argument turned very violent. He ended up kicking me extremely hard to the point where I kind of flew out of the bed. Um, At that point in my life, I was not a small individual and I was, you know, I had some weight on me. This guy was strong and he kicked me out of the bed. I flew across the, like across to the wall, hit the wall, landed on, we had like this little storage, like plastic storage bin thing with stuff in it, landed on that, knocked it over I don't know what time it was, but it was early in the morning, like middle of the night, early in the morning. And the kids woke up crying. It just ended up being a really ugly situation. And needless to say, the next morning he was on a flight back to the East Coast. I was devastated, but I wasn't devastated at the thought of losing the relationship. I was devastated because I felt stupid. I felt like, why did I continue to give this guy a chance who clearly didn't deserve it, who was unstable, who was obviously mentally unwell, um, who had a lot of problems? And why did I think I needed that in my life? Why did I think I needed to be around that in my life? And obviously, over that course of a year and a half uh, that we were together, you know, there were a lot of instances like that. It was just a a constant buildup. So I can't possibly share everything. But the events that led up to me realizing he was mentally sick were really intense and scary. I've never had never dealt with anybody like that in my life. And it was so foreign to me. And I just kept saying, what is wrong with this person? What is wrong? And we would fight and I would literally scream at him like, you're fucking crazy. You know, what is wrong with you? So he went back to the East Coast. Um, I told him that I wasn't interested in our relationship and he needed to seek help. Um, I needed a break. He ended up staying in the East Coast for several months and started seeing a psychiatrist. She was a woman who I appreciated at first and then thought was a piece of shit second. (laughs) She diagnosed him with schizophrenia. She did several assessments. She asked a lot of questions She was really good at including me in conversation. She would email me and call me and ask me about certain things about his behavior and some of the things that happened and all of that stuff. She, uh, again, she diagnosed him schizophrenic and explained to me why, um, you know, kind of what the characteristics of schizophrenia were. She explained to me that oftentimes delusion paranoia, hallucinations, um, even aspects of narcissism, feeling like 
everybody in their life is against them or plotting against them. Just everything kind of revolves around this person. Um, and so she explained to me how those were symptoms of schizophrenia and how it was appropriate for him to seek treatment. She then prescribed him medication, continued to work with him pretty intensely for several months. And I remember one day she sent me an email and said, this individual is doing really well. They've made a tremendous amount of progress. They are proactive in learning a lot about their mental health and their mental illness and what to do to be able to live and function and thrive in a way that it does not affect their relationships and their friendships and, and the positive aspects of their life. And she said, um, if you, the two of you were interested in rebuilding the relationship to give it another try that she would be willing to be a support system for us. And I guess there were things about him that I missed or was hanging on to, you know, again, kind of like the first relationship I was in, you have this idea of who this person once was the charm, the charisma, the things that brought you together. And sometimes you hold on to that and think, well, that person's still in there. And I just remember thinking, well, he's still who he was when I met him. And that was a great person, a fun person that I did like to be around. And I do see that there's a potential or I did see that there was a potential. So if he's on a road to getting better and to getting his behavior and, and mental illness that I now know he has under control, it's not his fault. He's schizophrenic. It's not his fault. He was feeling those ways. I know he didn't choose that. You know, I started to um, almost kind of gaslight myself and think, you know, I'm, I shouldn't blame this on him. I shouldn't hold it against him. I shouldn't be so upset. I should, you know, all of these things and making justifications for it. So I thought, okay, we can give it a second try. So we moved back in together and within uh, maybe two or three weeks, his behavior started to become bizarre again. It became very paranoid again. I learned he had stopped taking his medications. Um, I reached out to a psychiatrist and was telling her the things that were going on. And she replied to me, well, what are the behaviors that you're doing that are triggering him? <laughs> and I'm thinking, you just gaslit the fuck out of me. What do you mean? What am I doing to trigger him? I'm trying to work through this, you know? And so I got really frustrated and ended up just going back and forth with her via email and explained how unfair it was for her to blame me for his behavior. I explained to her he had stopped taking his meds. And I was like, obviously, as a psychiatrist, something in your job is, is not working or you're not doing something right because he is no longer applying anything he learned from his treatment with you and is totally backtracked. Um, and it became even worse. So our arguments became Hey baby. Whatever. What you doing? 
I'm on a walk. Oh, good job. I know. Right. <laughs> I was doing my podcast. Yeah. No, it's okay. I pa- I paused it. Oh, well, that. Yeah. I want to throw you off. Shit. You stupid. <laughs> no, I'm gonna take a, I'm gonna take a walk in a little bit too. Mark's off today because of Columbus Day, and I haven't heard from anybody, so I don't even know what's going on. He he. Anytime the bank said the bank or the mail say they're they're not running, Mark's Mark's t- it's his excuse to stay home. But everybody else should be at work though. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. So I'm chilling. That's all. Okay. But how's your morning? Is it, did it get any better? Sandals to go for a walk. You stupid. I put on my Birkenstocks. You don't. Ha- you should keep some um, tennis shoes in the car. Right. To change yeah. into. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is not comfortable. <laughs> but now I said, uh, did it get better this morning? Well, I was trying to make that shit as awkward as possible. <laughs> Oh, well, that's right. I, mean, I get it because you did tell me like whenever she- our arguments became increasingly physical, he became increasingly agitated. He began to just believe that there wasn't anything wrong with him. And I truly was this horrific, deceitful, intentionally um, disgusting human being meant to just be a piece of shit in his life. And then he began to speak about suicidal ideation and he would say things like, maybe I should just kill myself and teach you a lesson. Maybe that's the best, best way out of this situation. If I really am crazy, I don't want to live. So I'll just, I'd rather just die. It was all way too emotionally intense at that point for me. I certainly wanted out. Um, I wasn't romantically, I guess, dedicated to him anymore. I think the break that we took while he was receiving treatment was was helpful for me because it did disconnect me. Um, and create some distance. That was not a situation where distance made the heart grow fonder. I think I almost, looking back now, see that I felt obligated to give him a second chance because I felt sorry for him. I felt like it wasn't his fault that he was acting the way he was acting and um, just hoped things could be different. But I quickly learned they weren't going to change. I quickly learned that he was not going to change and was not any different. Um, and his behavior again, just became worse and more intense and started to take on new forms and and look different in scarier ways. So I, uh, he only lasted a couple more months. Um, and then I was like, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore with you. Um, I was done giving him chances and hoping that he could be better. Um, and that's the tricky part of mental illness is it's really hard to be in a relationship with someone who is mentally ill. A lot of the times, unless they have a clear grip on 
their mental illness, their behavior, and they're treated appropriately, they're unable to have fulfilling relationships. And this was definitely an example of that. I ended up telling him he had a very short period of time to leave my house and move away. At that point, I didn't care where he went. I didn't care who he went to or what he did. I just wanted him out of my house and far, far away. And I wanted nothing else to do with him. And I felt empowered because I had already left a very terrifying relationship. I don't think I was scared to end this one. I wasn't really afraid of what he might do or anything. I was pretty fearless. And once I had reached that breaking point of, I don't want this anymore, I'm done. I really was just like, get the fuck out. I don't care anymore. He then began to threaten suicide because I was kicking him out. It was, you know, I love you. I I don't want it to be this way. I'm going to go, I'm going to, you know, grab my gun and go sit in my car and and I'm going to blow my brains out. And that is a form of abuse. And I literally said to him, then go sit in your car and blow your brains out. But you're not going to guilt me into keeping you around. Like, get the fuck out of my life. I don't want to be with you anymore. So he left. He eventually left. And that was actually the end of that. Our relationship immediately dissolved once he left. Um, I believe he went back to the East Coast. Have not spoken with him since. Have not heard anything about him since. Do not care to. Um, I'm. That was it. So that relationship inspired me in a lot of ways to figure things out and to figure things out about my life, about red flags, about behaviors. That was my second encounter with somebody whose extreme behavior devastated a significant period of my life. And although my relationship with this person was much shorter than my relationship with my first abuser, Time does not matter when you are in an abusive relationship. One week can feel like a decade. And I felt like a long part of my life had been devastated. And I really wanted to learn more about why abusers act the way that they do, why their behavior is so bizarre, why it's so selfish and self-centered, you know, and just why they are how they are. And so after learning about schizophrenia with my experience with this individual, I decided that I wanted to do more. I decided that if I was a woman who had survived two domestic violence relationships, both looking very different from each other, that there were so many other women out there just like me who needed to hear that there was a very real possibility of surviving and healing and getting away from these really unhealthy, toxic people. So I decided to go back to school. I went to school for psychology. I began to really dig into mental health. And coincidentally, my favorite class was abnormal psychology, where we learned about personality disorders, schizophrenia, and the severe mental illness diagnoses. And I feel like that shed a lot of light for me in a way that helped me to learn what my purpose was going to be in life. So I took it. I ran with it. 
at the very end of my degree program. I also went to school simultaneously for life coaching. I became a credentialed life coach. I actually became a master life coach, which is kind of the equivalent of a bachelor's degree versus a master's degree. Obviously, life coaching credentialing school is not as long as any of those degrees. However, I uh, wanted to be as skilled and educated and knowledgeable as I ca- as I could in helping people learn about their circumstances, learn about themselves, and overcome really traumatic events in their lives. And that, in a nutshell, is why I went to school for what I did uh, and why I became who I am today. This particular relationship was very pivotal in how I made those decisions for my future. So I'm not here today to say that everyone who experiences mental illness or mental health issues will be abusive or is an abusive person. But I am here to say that, again, over 15% of abusers are diagnosed with mental illness or do suffer from severe mental health issues. And I want to say that because there are red flags that are so important to pay attention to that can potentially save your life. I dismissed the red flags in the beginning, as I mentioned, the constant questioning, the paranoia, the insecurity, the disbelief of, you know, my honesty Those things in the consistent way that they continued to be a part of conversation and a part of the argument and the way that they escalated into more and more were certainly huge red flags. There was no reason for me to dismiss them the way that I did. Obviously, I can look back now and see why I did that and and where I was being dismissive or overly forgiving. However, please, if you are in a relationship, be aware of the red flags. There is no level of charisma, of laughter, of care, of experience together, or of love that is worthy of dismissing toxic red flags. Do not indulge in a relationship with someone who is constantly showing you toxicity. Believe them for who they really are. I remember a long time ago, I was listening to a podcast with uh, Eckhart Tolle and Oprah. And she said, and she said, when someone shows yourself their true colors, believe them the first time. And this is my advice to you. As Oprah said, when someone shows yourself their true colors, believe them the first time. That is who they are. You cannot put your eggs in one person's basket in hopes that they'll change. You don't know the future. You don't know what that person's intentions are or how they'll really turn out or who they'll really become. Do not invest your hopes and well-being into someone who you hope will get better or who you hope will be better or who you hope will change for the better. That's not fair to yourself. And that's certainly not anything that's going to ensure a healthy experience with this person. If you are with somebody who is toxic, who has toxic behaviors, who has toxic tendencies, please see the red flags, acknowledge the red flags, and know that 
not being with that person and removing yourself from that situation safely, of course, obviously safety is always an issue in any domestic violence relationship. However, if you're able to safely leave that person, if you're able to remove yourself from that relationship or no longer continue to pursue it, please do that. Read the room, ladies. Know the red flags. Pay attention. Listen to them. If someone's behavior is off, you are certainly not obligated to continue to give them a chance or to give them a chance at all. Okay? There are a couple of resources that I want to give you today. The first is the Domestic Violence Hotline, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, ncadv.org. The hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE. The National Domestic Violence Hotline website is ndvh.org. And I also want to give you resources for mental illness uh, support. Um, The National Institute for Health is nimh.nih.gov. You'll find a ton of resources there. Of course, if you're in a situation where you fear for your life or your safety, please call 911 if you can. Otherwise, you can call or text 988 for your local crisis and suicide resources. There are people there to help you. You can also use the Lifeline chat, which is confidential. And reach out if you are in crisis or if someone you know is in crisis or is feeling suicidal. I understand that abusive situations come in all shapes and shapes and sizes and colors. Not one situation looks the same. One thing victims and survivors can relate to is that we know what the faces of abuse look like, but all of our stories and, and circumstances are different. So please reach out if you need help. There is confidential help out there for you. Please safety plan. Safety planning is so important and it literally can save your life. Keep keep a close circle of support in your corner. If you have friends, family, or other people who you can turn to, talk to them if you feel comfortable with it. They are there to be your support system. They can help you in your safety plan as well. As always, you're welcome to reach out to me at theunspokencycle at gmail.com. I'm here to be a supportive resource for you too. I don't know what you're going through, but I am certainly happy to do whatever I can to help. Thank you for listening to part two of my unspoken story. It's always humbling to be able to feel safe and talk about my testimony and my experiences as a domestic violence survivor. Every time that I'm able to post something or talk to somebody about it, teach a class or a webinar on how to heal and cope and and survive your trauma circumstances, it's another part of my healing process. And I just thank you so much for allowing me to continue down this road and truly live out my purpose. If you have not yet, please like and subscribe. I appreciate your support so, so much, much more than I could ever possibly express. Thank you, ladies. I look forward to you joining me for next week's episode of part three of my unspoken story. Until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to The Unspoken Cycle with Leah Vaughn. Remember to embrace your female within 
and connect with our community at theunspokencycle.com. Until next time, take care.